All right, if you have a Bible, Deuteronomy 8, Matthew 4. We have, we're in a part of a seven-week study on the subject of temptation. We spent all of last week in James 1. We spent two hours on it. Uh, this is hour number 12 in teaching on the subject. Um, for the podcast, we spent most of that time working on all kinds of different things. Um, lots of assignments, lots of homework, curriculum. All the things we've done there, uh, part of a sermon review that I did last night that was almost an hour and a half worth of, of work. So we've done a lot of work to get to where we are today. But for this week, all of this week has been Deuteronomy 8, Matthew 4, Deuteronomy 8, Matthew 4. All of next week is Deuteronomy chapter 6, Matthew 4, Deuteronomy 6, Matthew 4. And the curriculum is taking Deuteronomy 8 and Matthew 4 and focusing it on a specific kind of temptation. We spent the last hour working on Deuteronomy chapter 8. I'll go through some of it just briefly to review some of it to get everyone who's now currently here on the same page. Then we're going to go to Matthew 4, work on it a little bit, and then possibly tonight come back to work on Deuteronomy 8 and Matthew 4 in a different way. So let's do this. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 8. We'll try to hurry so we don't have to spend too much time in review. Deuteronomy chapter 8, so that we remind, we are reminded of the historical context, that Israel's getting ready to finally go into the promised land after 40 years of wandering. The first generation, well, they didn't make it to the promised land. They've walked around for 40 years dying, okay? God is the one who, obviously, we can, no matter how we want to get around it, no matter how nice we want to be, God could have taken them right out of Egypt, right into the promised land, but he did not. He took them into situations where they did not have food or they didn't have water. They would grumble and complain, and then issues would happen, sometimes judgment, some whatever. He brought them to the promised land. He could have just said, go in, and all of the people there could have already been removed. God did not remove them. He left them there. Not only did he not leave them there, they go send in spies, knowing exactly how the whole situation is going to work out. And then what happens? They grumble and complain, and they, they end up walking around 40 years and dying. So no matter how much we want to remove it, we, can't get God, we cannot get God out of the situation. And this is, a whole, this is the whole part of dealing with temptation. Whenever we're dealing with the subject of temptation, James 1 brought this up, and I've been talking about it a lot this week on the podcast, is we, how do we understand God's involvement in temptation? Now, the, theologians love to, they think it's some great, grand, wonderful solution is to say, well, God is not directly involved. He's indirectly involved because God uses secondary causes. Somehow that gets God off the hook. But even if you say he's using secondary causes, it's still a problem because who's in control of the secondary cause? God. Who decreed it? God. Who allowed it? God. Who's limiting it? God. So even if you get God out of it, God is still involved in it. And it's and it there's it's maddening, but it's it's something that we have to understand. So how we typically do so from a Christian perspective, James 1 says this, and it's not an easy thing to say. James 1 says, count it all joy. And why do we count it all joy? Is because in temptation, something spiritual takes place, right? Something good supposedly takes place spiritually. And that good is it reveals to us what is actually inside of us. It reveals to us, because remember, temptation is an enticement to evil and it is a trial. A trial is a temptation. You cannot separate it. The Greek word has all three. It's an enticement to evil and it's a trial that gets you in thought, word, desire, feeling, 
and action to do, to do that which is contrary to God's word. It does this in order to test you, to show you in what ways you're not thinking, speaking, desiring, feeling, or acting in accordance with God's word. But that's, that's the reality. People, uh, preachers everywhere want to separate the temptation from the trial. You cannot do that because the trial is an enticement to evil. It's an enticement to get you to think, speak, desire, feel, and act in a way which is contrary to God's word. But it does so to test. Now, it's, it, so in church, it sounds good, right? Hey, God does this to test you, to show you where you need to grow spiritually so that you should count it all joy because God is doing a wonderful work in you. And everybody says, amen. That's a great thing. Tell the woman who's being beaten, raped every day that it's a wonderful thing. Tell the child who's being molested that it's a wonderful thing. Tell the person suffering from it. All of a sudden, it's not so wonderful, is it? That's hard for us to wrap our mind around. So how God is involved is a major issue. But immediately it begins to show us that our entire perspective can't be about us, right? That in a sense that what we have to realize is God is more more worried about what? Our spiritual situation than he is our physical, our mental, our emotional. And therefore, that's that's hard to understand, right? Everyone will, preachers will preach, Job is a beautiful story. There's not a thing beautiful about that story, right? You say, well, God was doing a wonderful work in Job's life. The killing of his kids to do a wonderful work? You would think he could find a better way to do it, right? That's, that, that's not an easy story. So that whole story is hard. So how do we understand God's involvement? There's no easy way. I just want to make sure we understand. There is no easy way around it, right? There is no easy way around it. The, the, some, sometimes Christians are like, the good thing about Christianity is at least we know there's a purpose in our suffering. I don't know. We, and, I, and I raised this question last night in the live broadcast. Which brings you more comfort, having a purpose in your suffering or having no purpose in your suffering? Christians love to say they find some great comfort in the purpose. I don't know if it brings, I don't know if that, hey, I feel so much better that I was abused as a child, tied up in a closet because there was a purpose behind it. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know if that works. In some ways, not having a purpose, at least it makes more sense to me, right? But for some people, it's the purpose that makes more sense. I don't know. And either way, it's difficult, is it not? So, we, so we're like, hmm, we don't have a lot of answers. And, and of course, we shouldn't expect to have a lot of answers because we're dealing with a God who is eternal, all-knowing, wise, and infinite, and we are finite, not all-wise, not eternal. So our perspective is never... You talk about not having the same perspective. We're never going to be on the same page. But the reason we, we have to deal with that is we come to Deuteronomy chapter 8. And Deuteronomy chapter 8, most preachers want to remove it from the temptation page as fast as they can, right? Because they got to get, because this would put God right involved in it. But God is involved in the situation in Deuteronomy chapter 8. I can't spend a lot of time on it, but here we go. I'm going to go through it quickly. Verse 1, we have law. Because God says, or it is stated here, all the commandments which I command thee this day shall you observe to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers. 
please note that has very much the Old Covenant kind of language, the Old Testament kind of language, which is do what? Obey and live. That is law, right? How does the Old Testament saints always respond to the command, obey and live? They fail, right? Which is a reminder that every law in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, every commandment is a law which we will never obey, ever. And churches constantly preach them like, you can. That is the most ridiculous thing. I don't know why churches do that. You can't. You can't. It will only take me five seconds to prove it. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Anyone ever do it? No. Love your neighbor as yourself. Be holy as God is holy. All right, therefore, you've already failed. All right, you're done, right? And I could go on and 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 on. We fail, we fail, we fail. And even if we, even if we pull something off externally, we almost always fail it internally. So here's a law. We already know they failed it, right? The previous generation failed it. And guess what? This generation that he's getting ready to talk to, they're going to fail it as soon as you get into Judges. They don't even drive the people out of the promised land. They fail to do that. And then in Judges, they start doing what is right in their own eyes. And then they're going to say, we want a king. And then they're going to end up in a divided kingdom. And then they're all going to end up in captivity. All right? So they fail. They fail. They fail. The Old Testament is a book of failure. That's how come it's good to read Genesis when a little baby, or Matthew when you read that a little baby was born who's going to save his people from their sins because they can't do it themselves, all right? So a lot of people preach Deuteronomy 8 as like, hey, here's how God makes you a victorious Christian. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous, all right? But there's law. What's the second thing we have? We have a reminder. There's two reminders. And thou shalt remember all the ways which the Lord thy God led thee. Immediately, we are reminded that God, they were reminded that God is doing the leading. Immediately, we put who's involved in the situation. God is involved in the situation, all right? He, uh, he led thee 40 years in the wilderness. And then you see that little two-letter word? Two, all right? So there's two reminders, the two reminders are the first reminder, he's leading them. And the second reminder, he was leading them to accomplish something. There was a purpose in it. So this is not a purposeless. This is a purposeful situation. There is a purpose in it. All right. So he leads, he reminds them to lead them. Then he outlines the steps God took. He takes a number, a number of steps here. The first thing he does, he takes the step to do what? To Humble them. He humbles them. He humbles them. This is to humble, is to break you, to become less and less and less and less and less and less about you and more and more about him. Not about your physical well-being, your emotional well-being, but God's glory. Now, that's, you know, that's, that's easy to preach. It's, not hard to, it's hard to live. Would everyone agree with that? Like someone horribly suffering, you don't walk up and say, God's humbling you. You just shut up, right? You don't say, probably it's best not to say anything because either you're going to say something stupid, like, hey, it's all going to work out in the end. The sun's going to come out tomorrow. The rainbow's going to be there. Skittles will fall from it. A unicorn will hop by. No, just stop it, 
right? And sometimes all you can let them do is the process has to go through the process. Just, again, I've always said the best advice you got on suffering is in the first part of Job where his friends did not say a word because the minute they started speaking, because almost every, here, God's humbling. He's breaking, right? That's the first step. What's the second? To prove thee. When he's proving thee, he is proving, he is proving you to you. He's proving to you what is inside of you. He's not proving it to himself because he doesn't need to know it, right? Right? So he's to humble thee uh, 40 years in the wilderness or, or, or in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee to know that what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. The way we put it in our outline, and I've got to go as quickly as I can, we put to humble, to prove, and then to teach. See the word to know? He's proving you, right? And he's, and he's teaching you what is inside of you. He's humbling you, proving you, teaching you, and then he's doing something else. I don't have time to go break it all down and how to read this, but he's providing. He provides for them in the text. We'll have to go. I don't have time to break it all down, all right? Now, how did he humble them? Look at verse 3. There are two things he did to humble them. There's two things he did to humble them. What are the two things he did to humble them? All right, he, he, he put them in a position where they were starving. He put them in a position where they were hungry. Now, how does that humble you? Because he put them in a position where they could not what? Feed themselves. He brought them to the end of themselves. They couldn't feed everyone. Right? Now, first, that's a, te- that's a temptation, because then you may be tempted to go try to find a way to do it yourself, right? But it brought them to the end of themselves. What is the second thing he did to humble them, which is just bizarre? He fed them manna. How does that humble them? Because he showed them that he provided them in a way that they could not provide for themselves. He was like, look, you're going to hungry. You can't take care of yourself. I'm going to feed thee. And you don't, did they do anything in order to get, to get the manna? No, it was outside of their ability or control. They didn't even understand what it was. Right? And then he did, so he humbles them. And this humility shows them what? It, look at the verse. The next verse. Eight, or the end of eight, three. Very important phrase. The man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. Now, I want to make sure you understand this. I do not know why pastors do this. I do not why, do why churches do this. They take that verse and say, see, guys, you do not live by bread alone. You live by the scriptures. This, so you need to read your Bible more. You need to do more devotional. That's not what this verse is saying. What is this verse saying? I know this is reviewing from the last hour, but I have to do this to get everyone on the same page. What is this verse saying in its historical, textual context? That their survival was not based on physical bread they could find. Their survival was based off what God spoke 
into existence, what God brought to them. In other words, what God spoke. If God spoke, manna be there, manna's there. If God spoke, water be there, water was there. In other words, their existence is based on what God says, not on our physical ability to obtain. In other words, it's not, in other words our, our survival is based off our reliance upon God, not our ability. Now, for them, it's very, very, it's, it's literal, right? For them, it's literal, yes? It's absolutely literal. For us, obviously, there's a spiritual aspect. I do not live based on what I can do, what I can accomplish, what I can achieve. I can, my, survive, my spiritual survival, my spiritual salvation is based on the, what God says, what God has done. In other words, it's a, it's, a, it, it, it's a phrase to demonstrate that their reliance is they cannot rely on self, they must rely on God. Does that make sense? Okay, now, after God does all of this for them, many preachers preach it like this is the step to spiritual victory, but they all fail. They all fail. So even with all of the advantages they get, they fail. Now, that leads you kind of feeling helpless and hopeless, right? Right, well, the curriculum puts this passage right with Matthew 4. That's where we're going to be for the rest of this hour, right? In other words, Deuteronomy 8 does not end itself on a positive note. It it looks like it ends on a positive note, but it does not end on a positive note if you keep reading. Does that make sense? Because we know those same people are going to cross over into the promised land, and then what are they going to do? They're going to fail, 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 fail. Preachers love to preach Deuteronomy 8 like, here are the four steps to spiritual victory. Be humbled, right? God's doing this for you, and then you're going to be able to live out the Christian life. These people, all of these things happen to, I mean, we could go through all their advantages. Do they not have a lot of advantages? Where is God for them? Right there. Are they seeing miracles? Yes. Do they have an object lesson of watching all of their loved ones die all around them as judgment? They got judgment around them, so they know God judges. They got God's physical presence there. They got God doing actual miracles they got god given direct revelation and yet what do they do they fail meaning then we don't go to deuteronomy 8 as a as some kind of a step-by-step process to get the victorious christian life i don't know why preachers would preach it that way there is nothing victorious about it they fail so if they fail then what should be your what should you what should you be asking Well, then what's the, if they failed, what should you be asking? What's the answer? So then why would the curriculum connect Deuteronomy 8 to Matthew 4? Well, let's go to Matthew 4 and see if we find some interesting things, right? Um, I've had a number of listeners email me already this week. They've mapped this all out. They drew all the correlations between Deuteronomy 8 and Matthew 4. They've done a really good job on it. We can't get into that right now. We may use one of, their, uh, one of the files this evening. But let's, let's just look at this. You ready? All right. Then was, Jesus, then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. All right. This is Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Now, 
I could immediately start drawing all kinds of correlations with uh, Deuteronomy 8. We could go in. We'll try to do that tonight. We're not going to do that uh, uh, today, all right? We're just going to look at Matthew 4 almost as a separate entity a little bit, right? So what do we have in Matthew 4.1? Let's just work our way through it. What do we have in Matthew 4.1? We have a leading, do we not? All right? The being, and I hate to say this, but this is the text literally says it. Jesus is led into temptation. But I guess technically, what should we call it? How does the text actually read? Into the to be tempted. So you, could you say he's led? We'll say Jesus led into the wilderness. We'll say that he's led into the wilderness. You see immediately where we're going to draw some. Your mind should already be going to Deuteronomy 8 like crazy right here. I mean, man, Deuteronomy 8 should be coming to mind. But we'll try not to, we'll try not to do that. Jesus, we'll just say he's led into the wilderness by the Spirit. Is that fine? Right? He is led by the Spirit into the wilderness in order to be tempted. All right? Everybody got that? So if we want to, we'll just call it Jesus led into the wilderness. We'll call verse 1 just Jesus being led into the wilderness. I know I want to say led into the wilderness to be tempted because the text does, but we'll just get him into the wilderness, right? Okay. Then, and when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. I mean, immediately, I don't know how you can't read this. Deuteronomy 8 is just jumping all, all, I mean, like, I'm trying not to connect it right now, but it's hard not to, okay? All right, so he's there. He's there for 40 days and 40 nights. Clearly, the implication is, what does it, does it say specifically what he's doing in those 40 days and 40 nights? He fasted for 40 days. Everybody that? Okay, so he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, just remember, we still to this day do not know why church history, why the early church put fasting before baptism. To this day, I do not know why they made fasting a requirement for baptism because this happens... After his baptism, it makes, I don't know the early church, I don't know what they were thinking, but they put it, they made it a requirement. The requirement should be after you are baptized, then you fast. That should be the way you should do it. But that just demonstrates the early church started adding in ideas and concepts that were what? Not scriptural. They were extra scriptural. So, so that, that's why when people say, Let's get back to the early church. You wouldn't do half the stuff they told you to do. So why would you say you want to go back to the early church? Just a ridiculous statement. All right, here we go. Ready? He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was afterward and hungered. So he is hungry. He is hungry, right? That we've established that. He is hungry. Now, remember what I said. I will say this about Deuteronomy chapter 8. Remember, I, I demonstrated that God putting you in a situation of hunger, we may call it a trial, but it's a temptation, right? Because remember, you cannot separate a trial and a temptation. Does everybody understand that? Right? Is everybody in agreement with that? If you go to a different church, they're going to tell you differently. I don't care. They are the same thing, right? I would say, well, no, a trial is not a temptation. A trial is only a temptation depending on how you respond to it. That's just trash. The Greek word for temptation in James 1 put all three concepts together, right? Every trial is a temptation because with every trial, you're tempted to not think, speak, 
feel, desire, or act in a way that's, a, that's in agreement with God's word or to act in a way that's contrary to God's word, right? That's what's going to happen, right? So here, Jesus is hungry. Now, as soon as you're hungry, what, what, where is the temptation? Because now you have a desire, right? And whenever you have a desire, whether the desire is a good desire or whether the desire is a bad desire, right? If it's a bad desire, that's a, that's a problem. But even with a good desire, what is the difficulty? It's because you may seek to fulfill said good desire in a way that is contrary to God's word, right? So you can take the best, the most pure desire. There's nothing wrong with the desire, but your fulfillment of it, everyone has that problem. Everyone has that problem. I mean, in in a million different ways. Your your way may be different than mine, but so that means even a good desire can serve as a temptation, that's, that's hard to wrap your mind around, right? Every desire is a temptation. All right, but look what happens. Verse three. When the tempter came to him. Now, please note, this is, this is how we would try to justify this theologically. Now, we have Jesus involved here. So none of us are worried when you start reading this story for the first time. I don't know how you reacted to it. I don't know when you started reading this story the first time, you were like, oh, I wonder if Jesus is going to mess up. I doubt anybody read it that way the first time. Maybe I did. I don't know because I didn't have much church background. But um, I, I think I had at least enough going. I think I, I, I don't know if I, it would be interesting if anyone ever read it this way. But I think we already kind of go in knowing he's not going to mess up, which kind of takes away the drama from the story. Right? Like, eh, eh, he's not going to mess up. Yeah, big deal. Right? But if Jesus is not involved in this story, right? If we remove Jesus from this story, we start struggling with this a little bit philosophically or theologically, right? Because you're like, wait a minute. God led a person into a wilderness where they don't eat for 40 days and 40 nights. And then he's like, hey, Satan, there you go. We would say that is messed up. Right? I mean, come on. Wouldn't we not say that's messed up? We can pretend all day. Now, immediately that means because we're looking at it from what kind of a perspective? From a human physical perspective, right? Because you would not do that to someone, right? Like, I would hope the good ones would like say, Eli, you cannot eat those cookies. You cannot. If you eat those cookies, you're dead. It will be the end of your life. We made those for pastor. You cannot eat those oatmeal cookies. Do you understand, Eli? All right? Then they don't feed him for 20 days. And the cookies are right there. And in fact, they, they, they make a plate of them and they, put, they bring them to his room and hand it to him. And then walk away. You would be like, that's kind of messed up. That'd be like, you would probably question their parenting skills. Well, he should count it all joy. He should count it all joy because this is proving if he's really obedient in his heart. Well, of course he'd eat. He probably wouldn't have even waited 20 days. He would have just said, he would have probably eaten them 15 seconds later, right? But that, not to say that Eli's you know, disobedient. I mean, we, but we, we, all, we would all do it. So from a human perspective, so much of it is confusing. Like, why would God lead Israel into the wilderness where they're going to be hungry? Well, Deuteronomy 8 said, 
to humble them, right? To break them down, to then prove to themselves what was in their heart. And we know what was in their heart. They didn't do, do so well. So, um, but God was the one leading. Now, but in a sense, you could say, well, God, what, it wasn't God's fault. He just led them there and then whatever happened, happened. So he's not directly, he's not directly tempting. He's just indirectly. We can try to remove God. But in this situation, when we look at it from a Jesus perspective, we're like, yeah, so what? You, you were hungry for 40 days. You're God. Satan comes up. Yeah, so what? You're God. Like, we, it's hard for us to have any real, like, empathy here for the character. I mean, come on, right? Let's be honest, right? Now, if we put us in a situation where we're like, well, this is, why would the Spirit lead a man to that? Now, in this particular case, he's being led here. There's got to be a reason for this, right? There's got to be a reason. He's being led to directly be tempted, right? Why, why would this happen? Why would this occur? I think, there's a, I think there's an answer that goes back to Deuteronomy 8. You'll see in a minute, all right? So what happens? Satan comes in. Now, of course, obviously, this is all planned by God, right? The Father, right? This is all planned. Jesus, now, and now just make sure we understand, in his humanity, he's really hungry because his flesh he had to sleep, he had to eat, He grew weary, like his flesh felt everything a human being feels, right? It's hard to understand that, you know, true God yet true man. You don't want to remove his deity until he's just a man because then that destroys everything, right? But you don't want to so give his deity that you forget that he's a man. The whole hypostatic union, you got to have both, right? And it's hard for me to wrap my mind around, right? But he's really hungry. He's really hungry, I mean, I don't even, can't even, can you comprehend 40 days and 40 nights? I cannot comprehend that, right? I know I, I would have been dead like day one or probably day, I mean, dead, I mean, I, I don't know. I probably, hour three, I mean, I'd, I'd be, that's it, I give up, right? I'd be breaking into a McDonald's, who knows, right? Okay, but you get the idea, here we go. And when the tempter came to him, he said, if thou be the son of God, Command that these stones be made bread. All right. Now, Israel was in the wilderness, right? Okay. And they were made hungry in order to humble them so that they would learn a lesson. And their lesson is that they would learn to do what? Not about them, but to realize that their entire survival came from God. Right? Man does not live by bread alone but ever whether proceeded out of the mouth of God, meaning that their focus should not be on physical bread, but on God's word, not meaning that they need to do more Bible study because obviously they didn't even own a Bible, but that they had to trust in what God said and God would be the one who would provide. They could not trust in themselves. The whole point of what God was doing for Israel was try to break them, to bring them to an end to themselves that they would focus on him. However, the entire experiment was a abysmal failure. Now, I know I'm not supposed to say that, but the whole thing was an abysmal failure. It, it, like, there's no way to get around it. Did they, did they start relying on God throughout, as soon as they get into the promised land? They start relying on themselves. What do they do? They don't drive out the people. They start making agreements with the people. They start intermarrying with the people, and they start turning to idols. So give me a break. It's, a fail, it's an absolute abysmal failure. Right? So now Jesus, in a roundabout way, is facing a similar temptation. He's in the wilderness. He is hungry. And then Satan shows up, and what does Satan say? 
if you be the son of God, in other words, it's not, some people say that it's almost like doing it in a questionable way. How does the NIV translate the, the, the phrase? Okay, if you are, I, I, I'm curious, I'm curious. That's Matthew 4, 3. Is that Matthew 4, 3? Let me, I'm going to look at all the English translations. Matthew 4, 3, you see here. Well, they all say if, okay. I was going to see if any of them translated. All of them say if, 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 if. Almost like it's, he's, he's doing it in a questioning way, right? But I don't think, I, I don't know if we should read it in a questioning way, right? I, I, do you think he's coming up and saying, hey, hey, if you really are the son of God, prove it. I don't think he's, pro- I don't think that's what he's saying. They can say, well, hey, if you're the son of God, right? Then why are you hungry? In other words, do what? Fix the problem yourself. Feed yourself. Feed yourself. Feed yourself. In other words, do take care of the problem how? By yourself. What versus doing what? In other words, who led him there? The spirit. So if the father led him there, then what then what is what should be his attitude about being there? That I'm going to stay here and encounter whatever God wants me to encounter until his purpose be fulfilled. Now, so Israel, okay, God, if you've got us in the wilderness for 40 years and you're going to put us in a place where we're hungry, are you going to put giants in the land or whatever the situation is, we're going to rely on you, not on ourselves, until your purpose be fulfilled. Now that, that preaches good, and I want to make sure you understand, that preaches good on a Sunday. That doesn't preach so good right now. And I'm, I'm going to use the same analogy, the same illustrations that I used last night in the live broadcast for the, for the sermon review that we were doing. If you're a woman right now being beaten and raped, I don't know how well that preaches. If you're a child being tied up, burned with a curling iron, whipped with an electric cord in a closet, I don't know how well that preaches. If you're a child being molested, I don't know how well that preaches. If you're laying in a hospital bed dying of terminal cancer today, I don't know how well that preaches. That's, that's difficult, right? That's very difficult. But from a theological perspective, you know, that, you know we can say it here and everybody's like, you know, usually it's younger people who are really good, like, yeah, well, God is sovereign. You can do whatever you want, so what's your problem, right? Yeah, okay, you talk big until suffering comes into your life, and then you won't talk so big, right? Real suffering enters into your life. You may not talk so big and bad, right? You suffer a little bit. You're like, man, that doesn't preach so good. But it immediately demonstrates that what's this, what, for, for, for God, it's his purpose, not our purpose. The spiritual outweighs the physical, and that, that's not an easy answer. I don't, I don't want anyone to pretend that it's an easy answer. But Jesus is here. He's hungry from, in his flesh, and he's like, well, you're the son of God. So what does he say? What's the exact words? If thou be the son of God, turn these, command these stones to be made bread. Eat. Just eat. You don't need to wait. Just eat. Just eat. That's all you got to do. 
Right? That's all you got to do. You don't need to wait. You can alleviate the problem. Now, this raises serious questions, right? Because then it's like, well, wait a minute. If I'm going through a horrible situation, should I alleviate it? That's, that's a rather, rather profound question, right? Should I seek to alleviate my suffering or should I endure the suffering in order for God's purpose to be fulfilled? That's not an easy answer. I don't have an easy answer for that, right? Because you could say, could we not circumvent it? Uh, I'm just going to trust that I'm going to do whatever humanly I can and I'm going to trust that God will get whatever he needs out of this. Uh, I don't know. There's not, no, don't see, ask me for counsel on that, right? But in this particular case, the situation here, for the, 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 it comes down to, am I going to rely on God or am I going to rely on self? Who, what is Jesus going to do here? So what does Jesus say? Is it not written? And what is he going to quote? He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Meaning that what, what, is, what is Jesus saying here in its context? His context is this. I could either rely on myself, turn this into bread, or I'm going to abide by the will of my father in other words this is another round away of saying what not my will thy will be done it's just another way of saying that right now i'm not by and so we could argue and i've quoted it most of my christian life man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of god we typically preach that as to be what how do we typically understand that phrase study the bible this is more important than food. Now, there's other scriptures I think would probably do better that indicate that. I don't know if this one is ever meant to be taken that way. Right? What is he saying? It's not, oh, I, does Jesus need to read the Bible more? Do you need to study the Bible more? No, what is he saying? I, I'm not, my life is not based off physical. It's based off the spiritual and in this particular case i'm going to live my life based off the word of my father and the word of my father as it relates to that situation israel did they need to stop and do a bible study no it was like okay hey we're we're being fed by god in a sense by god's word god is declaring there's going to be manna there was manna he spoke it it was there so we're going to trust in what god says then not in the in other words we're going to trust in what god says not in pursuing physical bread what is jesus going to do here i'm not going to turn these rocks into bread what am i going to do i'm going to rely on my father and my, when my father says it's time to eat, I eat. Does that make sense? <clears throat> I know that may destroy how this verse is used in every church around America, but I think we've taken it out of its context. Hey, you need to, you need to study your Bible more. I don't think this is, this is not about studying your Bible more. This is more about doing what? How would you understand it now in its context? I want to make sure we get this. This is not the goal of this 
message, but it's becoming the goal of this message because I think this is such abused verse. I've abused it. <clears throat> when, when you study a text and you realize that you've misused it, you just got to be willing to admit that maybe we haven't used this correctly. How should we understand this verse? That, yeah, I, well, not only trusting in the sovereignty of God, I think the focus is that when every situation, am I going to live my life based off my feelings, my desires, my wants, focused on the physical, or am I going to say, I'm going to focus on what God wants? Now, you can say the only way I'm going to know what God wants is studying the Bible. I understand you can try to get you there, but that. This is not, Jesus is not saying, hey, Satan, look, guess what? I'm going to study my Bible right now, and I'm going to be, I'm going to look at this just at what God wants. It's not so much about studying the Bible as much as it's saying that my bread that my, I'm going to feed is upon what God wants, what God's will is. Now, God's will is determined for us in Scripture, but it's not about, this is not a verse about everyone needs to quote to get people to study their Bible. Right? In other words, you could study your Bible and still violate this principle. Does that make sense? <clears throat> Does that, do, sure, we, everyone understands that. Well, no one's ever fully surrendered. The, the, the point is this, is that, th- this is very important, is that you can know Scripture. I can know what God wants. Do I always do what God wants? No. Israel clearly knew what God wanted, right? I mean, they'd been told and reminded, right, over and over and over. Did they need to study their Bible more? No. To live according to God's word here wasn't about knowing it more or studying it more. It was more like, okay, God, you bring us into the wilderness. We do not live by bread alone. We live by your word. We're going to trust in you, and we're going to follow your will in this entire weird situation that you've put us in. Jesus is like, hey, he doesn't need, does he need to know the word more? No. So what is he saying? Okay, I've got a choice. Physical food or, in a sense, the word of my father, which is he has a purpose for me being here, so I'm going to stay here until that purpose is done. In other words, you can study and study and study and study, and we're confronted every day with those situations, right? Here's what I want, I desire, I feel. Here's what God's, God's word tells me. Man does not live by bread alone. I'm going to trust in what God says. It's about relying on God's word, trusting on God's word, following God's word. It's not about studying it more. Now, you do have to study it to know it, but this is not really about that kind of concept, if that makes sense. I know I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ruin every sermon that's ever been preached on this, but, I'm, but it's just we've handled it incorrectly. This is not about... Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds of the mouth of God. Read your Bible more. Study your Bible more. You need to have a daily devotional. That's not what this is talking about. You can read it. You can study it. You can do a daily devotional. This is about in life, you're confronted with a situation where you're like, I want bread. But I do not live my life by bread alone. I'm going to follow what God's will, desire, and purpose is as it is revealed in his word. Yes, you have to know the word to know that, but it's about trusting and relying on it. Does that make sense? Everything. 
everything. He's got to go through this entire temptation process, right? Now, but there's a deeper thing going on here. There's a deeper thing going on here. This cannot be a coincidence that this is so much like Deuteronomy chapter 8. This cannot be a coincidence. I mean, this is like, does it not feel like you're reading Deuteronomy 8? Were they led? Were they in a wilderness? Were they hungry? I mean, you can't get much more. Like, I mean, the correlations here are insane, right? Like, I, I almost want to pull up the chart someone made for me, one of the listeners. They, I mean, they went in. They're like, they, they like, look at this and look at this connection. And I'm like, whoa, this is like, this is awesome. Like, they, they did a good job, right? That, that's what, that, I love when people participate like that. That's awesome. They got it all mapped out. We'll try to look at it tonight. But here's what I want you to see. Think about it from a spiritual perspective then. What do you think the spiritual reasoning, what, what's happening here? What is happening here from a spiritual perspective? What do you think is going on in Matthew 4? Because how is Matthew 4 typically taught? Come on, y'all have been to church enough. How is it typically taught? What is a typical sermon on Jesus being tempted? What is it, how is it taught? You think that's how most sermons go? How do most sermons go on Matthew 4? Do y'all listen to sermons? Isn't Matthew 4 almost always taught that how Jesus overcomes sin teaches us the way? It's giving us instructions on how we are to overcome sin. Is that not how they're, I mean, come on. All right, I mean, if I need to, I'll go home today and go live on the air and play 500 sermons for you to prove this point, right? I'll go, I'll go to every church in Abilene and find their sermons on Matthew 4 and prove how it's taught. They're all taught that how Jesus overcomes sin teaches us how we can overcome sin. That's how they all teach it. That's trash. That's a dumpster fire. I know I just got myself in a a lot of trouble with that. I don't care. I just believe it's wrong. First, why did he overcome sin? Not because he quoted scripture. He didn't sin because he's God. So it doesn't mean if I quote scripture, then I won't sin. That's just ridiculous. Okay, everyone understands that? That's just, that, 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 anybody, that's just, give me a break. Just give me a break. I don't know why we would preach it that way. It's so ridiculous. What is it demonstrating? Okay, Deuteronomy 8. Are they not fa- facing very similar situations? Yes. The end result of everything they go through is What? Failure. Meaning, think of it this way, Deuteronomy 8 records to us the temptation of man. And it always ends in failure. Matthew 4 is the temptation of the son of man. And it resulted in victory. As a Christian... When I put my faith in Christ, his victory is my victory. In Christ, I overcome all temptation, all sin, not in practice, but in my position. In my position, what am I? Perfect, righteous, holy, sinless. 
In practice, I am not. Right? Christ fulfills what they could not. Matthew, uh, Matthew 4 is Jesus demonstrating. What, what does the Hebrews tells us? He was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. Hey, Matthew 4 is demonstrating Jesus' victory over sin for you. Matthew 1, the baby being born is going to save his people from their sins. How is he going to save them from their sins? By obeying what they can't, fulfilling the law which they can't, and dying for their sins. Matthew 4 is now Jesus demonstrating, you, got, you failed, guys. In the wilderness, you're trash, you're garbage. I took care of it. And they, did they live by bread alone? Or did they live by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God? No, they didn't. What did they start doing? As soon as they get into the land, they're like, do we keep fighting these people? Do we kill all of these people? Do we drop? No, no, no. We're going to live. We're going to We're going to live by bread alone. We're going to come up with an agreement with them, or we'll put them under tribute. So we'll make a little bit of money. Oh, and then we'll marry them because then it'll make everything more peaceful, right? That's living by bread alone, not by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. Because the, what did God say? Drive them out, kill everyone, which is a horrible thing to consider. But that's what He told them to do, right? Drive it all out. They end up, and did God tell them to turn to idols? No. And what do they do? Sin after sin. Because do we, do we ever live by uh, the word of God alone? We live by bread alone, continually in our life. Did Je- what did Jesus live according to? The will of his father. That was the bread Jesus ate. He, he ate the will of his father. He did it for you. And in his passive and active is imputed to you. In Christ, he provides everything for them. Just like in Deuteronomy 8, he says, I provided this for you, and I provided this for you, and I provided this for you, and I did this for you, and I did this for you. They did what with it all? They've stopped relying on God's provision, and they relied on themselves. Go back to Deuteronomy 8. Look at all the things that God does for them. Go back to Deuteronomy 8. All right. He humbles them, right? He humbles them, okay? He brings them to the end of ourselves, right? Now, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about this as a metaphor for salvation, right? For those whom God saves, right? We call it, remember, we have the general call and the effectual call. The general call does not bring a person to the end of themselves. The effectual call brings a person to they realize what? I'm in a wilderness, I'm starving, and I cannot feed myself. I am helpless, I'm useless, I'm a sinner, right? Is that not what the effectual call brings you to? Brings you to the point you realize, I cannot save myself. I cannot keep God's law. I cannot obey God's law. He demands perfection. I can't be, I'm starving. I'm a beggar. I'm a beggar. Look, the only thing you bring to Jesus is your sin. You got nothing else to offer him. The effectual call, that's, he humbles you. The effectual call brings you to into the wilderness and says, how are you doing now? And then you're like, uh, 
I'm, I'm, I'm going to die. Yeah, you are in your sins. That's where the effectual call brings you. So he humbles you. But then what does God do? What does that verse say in Deuteronomy? I think it's 8.3 after he humbles you. No, verse 3. He feeds you with manna. The effectual call brings you into the wilderness so you feel what? Your poverty. You feel like you're a beggar. And then he feeds you with manna. How does Jesus feed us with manna? Do I have to go to the Gospel of John and remind you? He is the bread of life, right? He's like, here you go. Here is the bread you need. He gives us the manna. He gives us the manna. What is that manna? It is Jesus himself. And what does it say? Once you drink and eat of him, you will never hunger or thirst again. Doesn't mean we always preach that, that, oh, now in life you'll always be content. You'll have everything. Give me a break. Christians are never content. Can we just stop that nonsense? If Christians were content, their homes would just be some furniture, some food, and a Bible. Right? Okay, there's about a million things we want and we enjoy, right? Okay, so come on. So, but we are satisfied what way? Man no longer lives by bread alone, but by the word that proceeds of the mouth of God. Now God's word is the thing that feeds us spiritually, and we have everything. We don't need any more food. But wait, hang on. He feeds us with he feeds us with manna, right? Now look at verse four. Thy thy raiment wax not old upon thee. Now he provides what for them? Clothing. See raiment, raiment, right? Deuteronomy. Everybody see it? Verse. What verse is that? Verse four. God provides us the bread. Praise God! Right? We will never hunger or thirst again. He provides us clothing. Does anybody see a correlation? We're clothed in his righteousness. He provides us clothing. And does it ever wear out? Never wears out. They're clothed. It says their clothes never waxed old, right? Never wore out. Does our clothing ever wear out? I am clothed in the right, perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. I am robed with the perfect righteousness of Christ. It never wears out. This is physic, physically true of them. It's historically true. By no means am I saying this is there to prove this, but I'm saying when you connect this with what Jesus does in Matthew 4, that Jesus is fulfilling this for them. Well, he, can I go, can I, am I guaranteed that God is going to give me some clothes that are never going to wear out? No, obviously that's not a promise for me. But I know he's given me a certain kind of clothing. He's clothed me in robes of righteousness that will never wear out. Amen? All right? He's given me bread. Okay? Uh, Neither did thy foot swell these 40 years. Now, what would be the thing about their foot swelling in that particular situation? They're walking, and if your foot's swelling, you can't walk. Well, guess what? Now for me, how do I walk in my Christian life? Is it, about, is it based on my practical advancement? No. It's based off what? His imputed righteousness and his obedience. It's not based, my foot's going to swell sometimes practically, is it not? In fact, it's going to break. It's going to fall off. I'm going to fall down. I'm going to be paralyzed. All the things that happens to us, but from my spiritual perspective, 
I'm just going to walk perfectly in Christ. In Christ, how is my spiritual walk? Perfect. In Christ, how is my spiritual fruit? Perfect. In Christ, how is my obe obedience? Perfect. Isn't that good news? Provides everything for them. And then it says, Thou shalt also consider in thine heart uh, that as a man chasteneth his son, so the Lord thy God chasteneth thee. We didn't get into the chastening part. Therefore, thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. Now, practically, do they ever pull that off? No, we know they don't. Now, what some preachers will preach is, see, when God humbles you and he tests you and he chastens you, then you will be obedient. Trash. No, I won't. I will never be obedient. But in Christ, guess what? He provides me the bread, the clothing, the walking, and the obeying is all provided by Christ. And guess what he's doing right here in Matthew 4? He's providing. He's providing. In fact, in Matthew 4, what is he providing? He's providing the obedience. He's providing the clothing. And soon, he'll be going to the cross to provide the bread, the food. He's, a, he's everything we need. He sustains us in every way uh, possible. Deuteronomy 8, so man does not live by, but by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. Who is the word of God? Christ. Does he provide for us? Yes. What does he provide for us? Bread, by giving up his body, right? We partake of it by faith. We don't partake of it by partaking of the Eucharist, we, that we only symbolize our partaking of it, right? Unless we're Catholic, then we would be partaking of the actual body and blood. But we, we partake of it by faith. There's the bread. He clothes us in righteousness. And then we, our walk is in him. He's the one who sustains our walk, right? Are, can you lose your salvation? No. Why? He's the one saving me, right? So in other words, my, in my practical walk, if, I, if my salvation was based off my practical walk, how long would I be saved? As soon as you get kids, you probably lose it, right? Okay, because you get frustrated and angry. Okay, I'm, that's a joke, right? As soon as you get married, right? I mean, whatever the case may be, right? As soon as you, in fact, it doesn't matter who you run into, as long as you live, because you've got a sin nature in you, you're constantly sinning in what? Thought. Word. Desire. Feeling action we're constantly in sin so if my so in a sense their feet did not swell meaning he sustained their walk he sustains my walk does not sustain my walk and making sure that i'm obedient he sustains my walk with his obedience how does my how is my righteousness sustained his righteousness how is my walk sustained his walk how is my spiritual salvation provided for? By his bread. He is the bread. Man does not live by bread alone. We, we are sustained by that bread. He's telling him, hey, look, 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 Satan. No, 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 no. I'm going to sit right here and I'm going to rely on my father's word. And I can say I can only rely on the word that comes from God. The word which is God. The word that was with God. The word that became flesh. And the one who provides for me. Matthew 4 is Jesus demonstrating where they failed, he did not. Where they failed, he provided. Deuteronomy, everyone views Deuteronomy 8 as a victory. There's no victory in it. 
All right? Do I need, do I need to prove that just briefly? I know we're at 12, 14. Let me just prove it briefly. All right? Everybody quick? Everybody ready? Go to James 1, or not James 1, Judges 1, verse 21, just so we can go quickly. Just because I, because I think some of you may be doubting me that I'm making this up. <clears throat> Judges 1. Now remember, when you get to Judges, this is the generation that's being spoken to in Deuteronomy 8. Everybody understand that, right? Okay, this is that generation. Because the other generation, they don't come over. They're dead, right? So they're, they're look, forget them, right? They're gone, okay? Moses is not even with them for crying out loud, all right? So like everyone there is gone, all right? Right? Judges one twenty one. what does it say? <laughs> Do everybody see it? And the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem. But the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem unto this day. Is that the way it was supposed to work? No. All right. How about verse 27? Neither did Manasseh drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and her towns, nor Tanakh and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Dor and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Iblium and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Megiddo and her towns. But the Canaanites would dwell in the land. The Canaanites, are they supposed to be there? No. All right, failure. How about verse 28? They put them to tribute and they do not drive them out. Immediately, how fast did disobedience occur? Pretty quick. Pretty quick. This is the people being spoken to in Deuteronomy 8. Are they humbled? Well, they're humbled. Is it, are they proved? Are they tested? Are they provided for? All of those things happen, right? Trying to demonstrate to them that man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. But as they move a little forward, what do they start focusing on? Not on the words that proceed from the mouth of God, but on, phys- on the physical versus the spiritual. And they fell and fell and fell. If they were to succeed, then we probably don't need a little baby coming to save the, his people from their sins. How does Jesus save his people from his sins? By fulfilling all righteousness. What righteousness? All of God's laws. And he does so immediately. He's hungry just like they were hungry, but he doesn't turn to the physical bread. He relies on the words of his father, and he obeys perfectly. And therefore, he provides for us. We'll stop right there. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. I pray that we would give this text even more consideration and thought in this week to come. I know we'll be moving on to Deuteronomy 6, but I would pray that you would just give us uh, more attention, more desire for this, so that we can understand the beautiful picture that has been provided for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...